All right, all right, good morning. All right, good morning. Hopefully you can find your seat, even though you were lost as a kid, or you've lost a kid. So how long were some of you ever lost from your, like separated, lost from your parents? Um, how many were lost for like an hour or longer? An hour or longer? Yeah. How many of you were lost for like a day? Any one day? How about two hours? How long? Two hours. What's the longest in the room? How long were you lost? Three hours? Three hours? Four hours. Okay, so now we know who, well, their parents didn't really care that much. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're, okay, at least the parents were incompetent to find you. But yeah, for four hours. Yeah, so what was the number one emotion you felt? Like, it, was it joy, I'm free? Huh? You were a teenager, so you didn't really give a rip. Oh, hiking in the Rocky Mountains. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, where are we? That's serious business. Yeah, that's like serious being lost. Like my, my kid was like hiding under a coat rack in a mall. So a little safer than the Rocky Mountains. But anyway, yeah. Let's pray together. Father God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the fact that um, when we were lost, literally you sought us and you found us. Thank you for that. Uh, Father, today as we move into a study of the gospel of Luke, we pray that you would teach us more and more about yourself. Teach us more and more about your son, the Lord Jesus about your spirit that lives in us and teach us about life. Uh, we love you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. The summer of 1989 was a big transition year for my family as Becky and I accepted the, uh, the call of a church uh, just south of San Luis Obispo in, uh, on the central coast of California. Uh, accepted the call to be their pastor. We packed up our bags. We were living outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. We packed up our three kids. And those kids, you know, at the time were just little guys. In fact, they were ages four, let me get this right, four, six, and nine. So at age four, six, and nine, we pack up these three kids and our Ford Taurus station wagon. Now, who even knows what a station wagon is? Raise your hand. Yeah, you've never seen, you've seen them in the movies. Yeah, it was the pre, you know, it was the, pre, you know, it was the, 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 the prelude to uh, minivans and SUVs. And, but we had this Ford Taurus station wagon, and it was kind of a mid-sized station wagon, but we had it packed to the gills, man. It was so packed you couldn't see out the back. And, of course, we had a big moving truck that was going to be following us out west as we moved from Ohio to California. But one of the things that we were excited about as we arrived and became Californians was the beach. You know, we were called to serve Jesus at a place called, uh, next to a place called Pismo Beach. I remember right as we were praying about making that move, we were out visiting the church and getting to know each other, and we literally were at a hotel in, uh, in Pismo Beach, down on the beach, uh, we were in the hot, uh, the, the spa at night. The stars were out, clear sky. You could hear the waves over the cliff there at Pismo 
crashing on the cliff, and we're sitting there, and this pastor actually joined us. Just my wife and I, and you might know, a pastor wrecks the mood, right? But he joins us in the hot tub there in the spa, and, and, we, and, he, and he explains to us that he's there to do a week of sermon preparation. He's from down in L.A., and he comes up there every year, and we're talking. He says, why are you here? And he says, well, we're, we're here to pray about whether or not it's God's will that we move here and serve a church. And he sat back, and he put his arms on the edge of the hot tub, and he said, you know, I think I could live here for about five years outside of the will of God and not even know it. <laughs> but we did sense it was God's will, so we moved there and we served at Pismo. And, of course, once we moved to California, all of a sudden all the relatives want to come visit, right? So my relatives from back in Alabama came out to visit, my sister and her husband, and they had two little kids, ages two and five. So now we got five little kids ranging from two to ten. And it was the summer of 1990, one year later, we go down to one of the beaches near Pismo, Avila Beach. How many of you have been up there? You know this? Oh, yeah. So we went down to Avila Beach. It's a smaller beach, but a beautiful beach near Pismo. And um, I actually had to work that day, but Becky tells the story this way. She says, they pulled up, and of course, you've got everything you need for five preschoolers and three adults, right? So you've got lawn chairs and blankets and towels and coolers and everything else. And so you unload all that stuff out of the station wagon onto the curb in this drop-off zone. And Becky, of course, gets all the kids out and the stuff out, and my, my sister and my brother-in-law and drops their kids, five preschoolers, three adults, etc. And Becky goes, I'll be right back as soon as I park the car. So Becky takes the car and she drives and it's hard to find parking in the summer at Pismo and Avila and those beaches, you know. So she had to drive around for several minutes, found a remote parking area, parked the car. She comes back and she walks down and, and she sits down in the lawn chair to talk to my sister. And oh man, what a glorious day. The sun was out. It was beautiful. The beach was packed. And after a while, Becky looked down toward the beach, and she did what every parent does, right? She doesn't really care which kids. She wants to count five. And she looks around to see if she can spot the five kids. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And she says, where's Jamie? And Jamie's our five-year-old. Where's Jamie? My sister says, I assume she's down there playing with the kids. No Jamie, missing, at the ocean, and instantly my wife freaks out. She starts screaming, she starts running up and down the beach, she sends my brother-in-law into the restroom, that's the first place, go into the bathhouse, check to see if somebody has taken her into the bathhouse. You're down on a crowded California beach, and you don't even know that she's been missing at this point for probably 15, 20 minutes. No Jamie. Finally, someone runs up and, and says, are you looking for a little girl? My wife says, yes. And she says, does she have a pink bathing suit, a little blonde girl with a pink suit? And Becky says, yes. And she says, well, she's, I saw her. She's, she's up about another block on the beach, but, but you know, and she's uh, holding the hand of a policeman. And Becky gets ready to run off, and the lady says, you don't have to hurry, she's with a policeman. And Becky says, well, I don't want to tell you what Becky said. <laughs> you know, 
But she's pretty irritated by that. But she said, are you kidding me? And she ran until she found the policeman. And sure enough, Jamie was okay. So end of story. Good story. So, but we learned, kind of learned a lesson, you know. Because when Jamie dropped them off, um, she assumed that Jamie went with our family. She was with the family. And my sister, when I asked her later, she assumed that Jamie stayed in the car with Becky and that she would come back with Becky. And, and they both thought the other one had her. Jamie survived being lost a number of times. That's the only story in which I'm not involved. <laughs> Several other times I was known to leave Jamie at the church, for example. And I thought she went home with Becky, you know, because, you know, as parents, we, as pastors, we drive two cars to church usually in those days. Yep. But Jamie has survived, I can tell you today. She's alive and well, loving God, living in Sydney, Australia, and hopefully not lost. But nothing terrifies a parent more than thinking you may have just lost. Because there's too many stories in the news of those kids who are never found. Today we're going to start into the book of Luke, but we're going to jump over the Christmas story because we've used Luke a lot already to teach the birth of Christ. But we're going to begin this study of this man, Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus? It's going to be a great year to go through Luke together. We begin today in Luke chapter 2, so open your Bibles and listen to this story. Verse 41. Verse 40, and the child Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Other translations say the favor of God was on this little boy growing up. This is all we know about his childhood, by the way. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Remember, he's living where? Talk to me. He's living in the city of Nazareth. No, no, no. He's born in Bethlehem. But after going down to Egypt and coming back, they settled in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is a small town. In fact, I don't know. Anyone want to guess how many people? And you you can't have been to Israel where you know the answer maybe. But how how many people were in Nazareth? You You got a picture of this town? Maybe a hundred, maybe a few more. Yeah, the town in size, archaeologists have dug around ancient Nazareth and they can tell from the location of the tombs because they were always, people were always buried outside the town or outside the city. So they can tell from the location of the ancient tombs the size of the city. The city was about 10 acres in size. Okay? 10 acres in size. Kind of picture our property, more or less, right? city is about 10 acres in size. The population was estimated to be somewhere between 200 and 400 people. You're talking a small, lower class, working folk kind of a town. Mostly farmers and people of, of different trades that would work, but there wasn't really any work for them usually in Nazareth, at least not much. There's not a mall in Nazareth, Okay. This is a very small little community. Everybody knows everyone. That's what you need to know. 
Now, there was a fairly wealthy, luxurious city not too far away that was built by Herod Antipas, one of the, one of the, the, the kings. And, and Herod built a very, a very big, luxurious, Greek-style city in which Joseph would have gotten probably most of his work and probably Jesus with him growing up, learning this trade. Joseph is often referred to as a carpenter, right? But actually, if you study this word for carpenter, it's actually more of a, of, a, of a person that works with his hands, with a trade. It doesn't have to be carpentry. In fact, some scholars believe Joseph was probably a stone cutter, but he built stuff. That's the idea. But back around there, most stuff was built out of stone, not wood, by the way. So there's more work for stone cutters. Joseph was either a carpenter or a stone cutter. He was a, he was a blue-collar, hard-working guy. And Jesus grew up as his boy living in a very small little town, probably two to four hundred people. Now, you got to, so if this was like the town gathering, you could fit all the population of Nazareth in this room. Picture that. And they take off, and at Passover, because they're, good, they're a good Jewish family, they're, they go to the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem every year. And it says, when Jesus became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast and as they were returning after spending the full number of days the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem now what they probably made was about a two-week trip and the reason for that is people always went a few days ahead of passover to do all the things ceremonially to prepare for that special day on the jewish calendar and then they often would stay for the feast of unleavened bread which was right after passover for a week so it's not uncommon they've probably been gone for a couple weeks and now their family begins the journey home but his parents it says that after spending the full number of days the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem but his parents were unaware of it because they supposed him to be in the caravan And they went about a day's journey, and then they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances or friends. You see, people never traveled alone. It's dangerous to go from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. So people often, for safety and for helping each other, would travel in small groups or caravans. And, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, the whole family's at the beach. You got your relatives with you. And, you know, Jesus is running around playing with his cousins. And, you know, and, and, and the reality is they just assumed that Jesus is with someone else until they do the once-a-day check-in and they realize, where's Jesus? I mean, it's kind of like watching the movie Home Alone, right? <laughs> this is like Home Alone, but this is Jesus. And they realize that he is, he's been left behind. He's somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's a bigger city. Jerusalem's the, the big city. Jerusalem, at that time, uh, you know, was probably um, about 55,000, is the research I read this week. They estimate 50 to 60,000 people lived in Jerusalem, but at Passover it would swell to over 200,000 or more that would come in because every good Jewish family, if they could afford it, would come to Passover. So you could have had at least 500, you could have had anywhere from, uh, people estimate anywhere from 200,000 to 500,000 people packing in around Jerusalem. So now picture that scene. Jesus is back there. So they hustle back. They've gone a day. They go back. It says that when they did not find him, they went looking for him. And then after three days, 
Probably they had traveled a day there, a day to get back, and a day to watch for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now notice that sentence. We'll come back to this. They were amazed at his questions. They were even more amazed at his answers. He wasn't just asking hard questions, smart questions. He was asking questions that they were somewhat stumped by. And and then after asking the questions, he's also, as a boy, given all these scribes and scholars of the Jewish law, Jesus is shocking them with not only his questions, he's puzzling them with his questions, and he's amazing them with his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. You know, it's like when you find a kid who's been lost. There's always two emotions. First, you just want to hug him to death, uh, and then you want to whack him. I mean, or some, you know, not, not, not abusively, but you, know, you want to say, you know, don't you ever do that again. You want to love him, but you also are, then, then you're kind of angry at him. Like, why did you do this? And Jesus said, verse 49, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's... And the next word is not in the Greek text of the New Testament, so you have to fill in. So what it really says, don't you need to know that I needed to be in or about my Father's things, my Father's house in this translation. In fact, I can show you this story of the boy Jesus lost and found in Jerusalem. That's where we're going. Jesus' explanation in different translations reads like this. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? That's the new King James version that I grew up with, the King James. And I actually probably like that translation better than the New American Standard, which is, did you not know I must be in my father's house? Or one more, the message I like best. It says, I had to be here dealing with the things of my father. In other words, you know, it's, it's my father's things. It's my father's house. It's my father's business that I needed to be about. You could translate it legitimately any of those ways. The key emphasis in the statement, don't you know that I had to be about my father? So what do we learn? What's the significance of this simple story of Jesus lost in Jerusalem, but then he's found? And what do we learn? How does this shape our lives? Let me hit two areas, one of significance and then one of application. The area of significance, I think, is this is the first glimpse at Jesus as the God-man. In this story, we see evidence that Jesus, number one, is a real boy. He is the Son of Man. He is born of Mary. He's growing up with real flesh. It says he's growing, he's developing. And in fact, the story starts in verse 40. The child continued to grow or mature, becoming 
strong physically, increasing in wisdom, that's mentally, and the favor or the grace of God was upon him, that's spiritually. So physically, mentally, spiritually, he is growing, he's developing, he's becoming a young man. There's evidence here that Jesus clearly was not just a spirit. There's false theology that says Jesus was just kind of like a ghost. You know, no, Jesus was a real human being, 100% human. But we also begin to get the first evidence that Jesus is a -a one-of-a-kind person that will later be called the Son of God. That Jesus was more than just a son of man, he was also the Son of God. We know that from his miracle birth where, where, where the Spirit of God actually conceived in the womb of Mary and Jesus would grow up. And remember in the Christmas story, statements like, you shall call his name, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He'll be called Jesus. He'll, he'll be the Savior of mankind. He's more than just a mere man. He's also the Son of God. We see it evidenced in the story. Let me just show you a couple things. In that one verse, it says, He was listening and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he's only a 12-year-old boy. By Jewish tradition, it's not till you're 13 that you even uh, are kind of welcome and engaged to even get involved at the temple as a, as a young adult. He's not even old enough, technically, to be at the temple. You see, he shouldn't be there. It's probably one reason his parents looked everywhere else first before they went to the temple. Because it wasn't common for the young children to go with their parents into the temple. But Jesus had been growing up in the synagogue there in his own town of Nazareth, a small little synagogue, and he would have been learning and developing and growing and amazing people. This wouldn't have been the first time that people were pretty amazed by this kid. But yet they didn't expect him to be in the temple. So he was making them think. He was amazing them with not only his questions, but also his answers. And then later he nails it in verse 49 when he says, Did you not know that I had to be about my father's capital F, his heavenly father, my father's business. You see, Jesus knew who he was. He not only knew who he was, he knew why he was. Jesus already knew that he was sent with a mission. Jesus already knew that he had a heavenly father that was his real father, his ultimate father. No disrespect, by the way, to his parents. And by the way, as we seek to apply this to life, this is not a story to encourage you to ditch your parents. Okay, that's not the point of the story. In fact, it goes on toward the end of the story. It says this in verse 50, but they did not understand the statement which Jesus had made to them. They still didn't quite get it. And he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them, to his parents. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So they even go out of the way in verse 51 to point out, now Jesus still submitted to his parents So this is not like you can just blow your parents off and decide to stay in San Diego anytime you want to. That is not the point of the story. In fact, it reinforces Jesus was an obedient child to his parents, but yet he also understood he had a greater mission than just obeying his parents, his earthly parents. That his ultimate mission and his ultimate allegiance was to his ultimate father. Was to his ultimate father. So as I thought about, so what's the impact of this in our lives? I think this 
this passage, this simple story, really begins to answer for us three questions. And here they are. Who's your Jesus? Who's your father? And what's your business? What's your business? Not what do you do for a living, not what's your job, but what's your real business with a capital B? What's your purpose in life? See, I think all three of those, if not answered or at least uh, we learn something about them. Who's your Jesus? We'll just leave those questions up while we kind of talk about them, all right? Who's Jesus? Realize that Jesus is not just a great moral teacher. Jesus is not what our culture teaches. He's way more than that. You see, in our culture, in fact, in each of these questions, our culture will answer them one way, but the Word of God will answer it another. Jesus, according to the Word, is life. He's the source of life. He's the, he is God come in human flesh to die for your sins and for mine. He is our Savior. He's the substitute who died on the cross for you and me to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins so we can be forgiven. But for Jesus to be your substitute, he had to be 100% man, yet live a sinless life, but also be 100% God because it's the value of the sacrifice that appeased God the Father. See, why would Jesus dying on a cross be able to pay the penalty or atone for your sin and my sin and the sins of the world? It's not just because he died on a cross. It's because of who died on the cross. God himself came down out of heaven, as Toby mentioned earlier, and, and, and he lived a sinless life. And he died for you and me. And to prove that he had successfully paid for your sin and mine and conquered death. Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today. And there's all kinds of evidence in history to prove that. So we know we have a risen Christ who really paid for your sin and mine. And when he was here, he said things like this, I am the way to God. I am the truth about God and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to God because he's the only sacrifice that really pays the price for our sins. Every other religion on planet earth has no sacrifice for your sins. It just has good advice for being a little better. But you know, you can have the best advice from all the religions of the world to be a little better. And being a little better doesn't take the place of the fact that the penalty for sin is death and, and, and you, we will still eternally die if we don't come to faith in Jesus Christ. So who's your Jesus? Make sure that you understand that question. If you don't have the answer to that question, you're in trouble. So I love the fact that our team, our teaching team, and uh, they've titled this series, you know, this, this man. Who is this man? Meet this man, Jesus. And this is just our beginning introduction to him. Who's that man? Yeah. Jesus is way more than the world wants him to be. The world wants him to be the great moral teacher, the kind, gentle Jesus the lover of sinners, the lover of the broken, the healer of the sick, all of that the world loves. I've never met a person, Christian or non-Christian, that told me, I don't like Jesus. But yet, 
they don't see the real Jesus, who's way more than just the kind, gentle Jesus. He is the Son of God. He someday will return as a mighty king and establish his kingdom. And, 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 and Jesus is way more, way more than what the world sees him to be. Who's your Jesus? Number two, who's your father? Who's your father? See, Jesus knew who the real father was that ultimately sent him. Jesus would say later in this book, we'll hear Jesus say things, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, how does it begin? Say it with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus, our Savior, coaches us to pray to the Father, to trust in the Father. And the reality is a lot of us struggle because we've had fathers that weren't there for us. They disappointed us. They maybe even wounded or abused us. Or perhaps they were just so caught up in the pursuit of career or this or that that they were absent from our lives. So when you hear the word God is your Father, Begin today to redefine Father, not according to Joseph, not according to my dad, who was a pretty good dad, or other dads who may have been missing from life, may have been checked out. You have a heavenly Father that you can trust in. You have a heavenly Father that Jesus, in Matthew 6, says, hey, don't try to just take care of yourself. Trust the Father to care for you. Because you know He loves you. You have a loving Heavenly Father who wants to care for you and guide you and direct you. You have a loving Jesus who died on a cross for you. Who's your Jesus? Who's your Father? Trust Him. And then last of all, what's your business? What business are you in? You know, what business drives you? And as I mentioned earlier, I'm not talking about what's your job. God has created us to infiltrate the world and do all kinds of jobs. God wants you working in all kinds of fields as teachers or doctors or carpenters or stonecutters or whatever you do. Okay? God has planted you there. But yet, when you read the Word of God, for example, just one verse, Ephesians 2.10. I love this. I love this because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 first says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not as a result of your works, that no one should boast. See, that's the grace of God based on the work of Jesus Christ, based on the good news of the gospel, the great news that you have a God who loves you, that sent His Son, and His Son died in your place. And He could do that because He really wasn't just a little boy. He was the God-man. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as it says in Scripture. So this is your Jesus, and He's given you life by grace. But then it says this in verse 10. For we are His now, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now we are in the business of, by grace, being equipped and given opportunity to serve the one who gives us life. 
and to serve this world. The Community Serve Day is just a simple snapshot of that. I love the fact that we at Seacoast do that. We, we say, and by the way, don't say we're not worshiping that day. Say, no, we're worshiping in a very unique way on that day. Tell your friends. I go to a church that every once in a while we worship by going into the community and serving in the name of Jesus Christ. That service is just as much worship as singing. And for people like me that sing lousy, that's a good thing. Gives me another way to express my worship. See, what's your business? And and, and the business becomes doing the will of the Father. Jesus was simply saying, hey, serving my heavenly Father and, and advancing his kingdom is why I came. And then Jesus says, guess what? As the Father sent me, Jesus said to his disciples, so I now send you to do the will of the Father, to advance the kingdom of his beloved son Jesus in our world. And I really believe that every day, practically, God is sending us out that we might be salt and light in our world. And God provides incredible opportunities. You know, and I just want, I'll close by giving you just a snapshot. And, and every day in my life is not full of these. But I recently was on a plane this past week. And in one flight, I, I prayed that God would upgrade me to first class. It was about a five-hour flight. And, and I knew that on the flight going there, I missed it by one person. I was on that upgrade list. Remember, have you seen those? Well, I was the next name on a five-hour flight, and I missed it. And I was a little irritated, but that's okay. So coming back, I thought, maybe I'll get it. Well, I didn't get it. But it put me in a seat with a, with a person next to me who was returning. And, of course, you do the, are you going home or where are you from? And says, well, I'm from Virginia, but I'm living in Temecula temporarily, and I'm on my way home to San Diego. I said, that's great. I said, so am I. Live in Carlsbad. So, you know, when they, when, you know they, we go through the usual courtesy. What were you doing? And I was on a little trip with my wife, and she said, well, I was on a trip for two weeks to attend a yoga training. I said, really? I said, that's fascinating. Tell me about that. And she says, yeah, I'm kind of fascinated with yoga right now, and I spent the bucks to go on this two-week trip for advanced yoga training at this special school, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and, and, she was, and she told me all about it. And I just asked her the question. I said, I said you know, I'm just kind of curious. Why, what's the attraction? What attracts you to it? And she says, well, I'm just into physical fitness. She was an older lady, but very fit. And... Uh, and she probably looked at me and knew I'm not into yoga. <laughs> but I said, well, yeah, I've, I've not done much yoga. You probably couldn't guess that. She was kind. She, but I said, have you ever explored kind of the spiritual side of yoga? And she said, you know, that puzzles me because there was a lot of talk about the spiritual stuff. And she said, I don't really understand that. And she said, to be honest, I'm not really into that. And I said, well, I would just caution you because I think it is rooted, the spiritual side of it. It's a great exercise routine, but the, you know, the spiritual side of it can be very dangerous because I don't think it's based in truth. And she said, tell me more about that. So that led us into a fascinating little discussion about how my life had been transformed by coming to know the truth about 
Jesus Christ and the fact that he really lived and died and rose from the dead and, and I had a chance to share with her the essence of, of Jesus and who he was. And, and, and she said, you know, that fascinates me. I, I need to study that more. And, you know, so I gave her some ideas of things she could read. And, and uh, we had a delightful conversation. As we got off the plane, she actually said, you know, I think maybe God put our seats next to each other. And I said, well, I believe that happens. I believe that happens. So I get off the plane, and then I have a little waiting time at LAX, and I'm in LAX, and I walk past a Vietnam vet. I knew that because he had a ball cap on that said Vietnam vet. You've seen those? So I just stopped with my West Virginia ball cap on, and I just stopped and did this. And I said, thank you. And he said, you're welcome. And he said, uh, I said, so tell me a little bit about your time in Vietnam. And I sat down, and we had a fascinating conversation. It turns out he, he had grandparents who were from West Virginia, so that was even a connection. And to make a long story short, we end up with a fascinating conversation about culture and how things have changed since we were growing up, and friends I knew that went to Vietnam and died in Vietnam, and his experience. And, and uh, so we had a fascinating discussion. And he was very open to talking about even spiritual things when he found out I was a pastor. I usually keep that undercover for as long as I can. Um, so actually, he's going to email me, and we're going to have lunch over in Escondido where he lives and follow up the conversation. And then I get on my flight from LAX to San Diego, and guess what? I get a first-class upgrade <laughs> that I've been praying for. Yeah, it's a 45-minute flight. <laughs> but sure enough, I get put next to another person, this time a very successful businesswoman coming back from her recent business trip to New York, and she flies back and forth all the time between New York and Chicago with her successful company. And next thing you know, we're having a little discussion about life and companies and making money and business and She's obviously, from the way she's dressed and the fact that she didn't need the upgrade to be in first class, I got the freebie. And then she says, you know, there is a point. She's probably in her, I'd say, late 50s. There's a point at which you just kind of get tired of just making money. So I had a chance to share with her about my, how my wife and I are at a point where we're trying to invest our life in the next generation of leaders in Africa. And she was pretty fascinated by that. So we had a little conversation about just the importance of spiritual things in general. It was a short flight, so we didn't go real deep. But here's my point. When you meet people, here's your goal. Your goal is to simply, wherever they are on the scale of being an atheist to being a committed Christian, you just want to just ask them to talk and let them tell their story. Find out where they are on that continuum and see if God can use you to move them a step more toward Jesus a step more toward knowing the good news. So a step more toward understanding. Because you know what was common with all three of those people? They all need to know who's Jesus. They all need to know who the real Father is. And in every case, it's your business. It's my business to give them good news. Isn't that fun? Just start telling the story. Pray with me. Father, thank you for how this story, thank you that Jesus was found by his parents, <laughs> and thank you that uh, 
in this story, we begin to learn the answers to the most important questions in our life. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us today that this Jesus is no mere little boy. He would be the man Jesus who would die for our sins, rise from the dead, who's alive today to empower our lives. Father, if there's a friend here today who's never trusted Jesus, I would invite you to pray with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, as I hear the story, I realize, uh, I realize now who you are. and I, I want you to be my Savior, my Lord. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for sending your spirit to live in your people. Thank you for being alive and well today to give us life. And Father, for those of us who have prayed that prayer many years ago, help us, Father, to remember every day who this Jesus really is. and To trust him, not ourselves. To know that he has paid for our sins and he has made us alive in him and given us life total forgiveness, freedom to respond to his love and love him back, and the freedom to be about his business. So help us, Father, to discover how you want each of us to do your business, to be in the family business as a child of God, and use us to share the good, good news the people around us in life. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.